highly favored? Yes. Your toes aren't too crumpled for me stomping on them? Everything okay? We're going to continue to unpack what it means to have audacious faith, and we're going to go into what I call the bees, the bees of audacious faith and walking that out. A few years ago, I had just taken on my current position um, in women's ministry, and that's when they hook you into doing really crazy things like, hey, let's take a whole bunch of women to a Women of Faith conference, like all together, and, and like put them all in your 15-passenger van and what other vehicles and drive and do whatever. This was years and years ago. And so I coordinated all that. I then learned that women can actually call and make their own hotel reservations and buy their own tickets. Who knew? <laughs> but at the time, because I was serving Jesus, I was trying to do all that. So we get to this particular event, <clears throat> we get, we have driven out of town, we've gone to this thing, we've gone through a huge arena, and we're in a major, major Texas city, and we go after one of the sessions to what call, is called a tapas bar, tapas, <laughs> tapas, <laughs> a tapas restaurant, a tapas bar, is where you go and instead of having like a meal, like a big meal, it's more of a Latin experience. We have like all these amazing little kind of hors d'oeuvres. It's like a heavy hors d'oeuvre kind of dinner. And you buy, you purchase not just a meal for yourself, you purchase like, basically it's just a fancy way of saying, we just pay double per plate for appetizers for dinner. But you feel very cultural because you went to a Thomas restaurant, okay? So the food comes out in kind of a staggered format. It's supposed to encourage Lingering around the table and chatting and hanging out and just kind of being, you know, acting like you're not a super type A American. That's what it's supposed to break you off. And so we were sitting around doing this. Now, there was a gal who I think, you know, she probably felt like she was very audacious. And as the food service is making its way the way that it was in the format of this particular restaurant, I don't know what came over her, but it was not the Holy Spirit. I will tell you that. She stands up and says to the waitress, I cannot believe how bad the service is in this place. First of all, your serving plates are tiny. I have been in the restaurant business. This is ridiculous, this little tiny amount of food. How is this supposed to feed anybody? Secondly, you can't seem to get the food out here all at the same time. Your staff is incompetent, and I'm, I'm sinking. I'm like, oh my word. And then she says, we are a group of Christian women here for this big Christian conference at Women of Faith, and I cannot believe this is the kind of service we are receiving. Thankfully, Texas is a licensed carry state. <laughs> it was just one of those that if I had a Benadryl blow dart in my back pocket, I, like, I mean, I just, oh. I was horrified. I was horrified. And I ended up going back into the kitchen with a lot of cash to tip and apologize. And I'm so sorry. And I, you know, I felt terrible. I felt terrible that our group got represented by the most audacious of the team. I felt terrible that this is how even, well, just the sheer hilarity of the fact that they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. We had come to their restaurant, which was a tapas restaurant. They were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. We were the ones who were culturally off scale. But that Jesus Christ's name had been represented in that way. Oh. 
See, this is part of my concern when we talk about audacious faith, is we better be really clear to talk about what it's not. What it's not. This is part of the bees when we talk about the bees of audacious faith. It's not about being bossy. To have audacious faith is not about being bossy. It's not about trying to control the music selection at your public school during the dance. That is not audacious faith. It is not about trying to control what's going on with this particular group or that, that entity or how your neighborhood's doing or, you know, all right, neighborhood, we're not going to do Halloween. We're going to pass out Bible verses and you've got neighbors who aren't even Christians. Like, that's not audacious faith. That's just being bossy. And it doesn't resonate in a world that needs Jesus. Audacious faith is not about being a bully. Have you ever seen somebody try to be a bully for Jesus? Because I have. And there may be times that I've maybe tried to be a bully for Jesus. My agenda, because I think it's what Jesus wants. My husband calls that the king's ex. Like when you have your thing you want to do, but then you slap the Jesus seal of approval on it. And now nobody can argue with you. Even better with, well, the Lord told me. I had a pastor for a period of time. I loved him because he would go, no, he didn't. <laughs> it's not about being a bully. Being audacious in your faith is not about bullying people to your agenda. You know, the example of Jesus just shows us we lay out the meal. We lay out what's available in Jesus Christ. And then people have to make their own decision. I heard one day, my daughter McKenna, she was about four or five years old. She was in the bathtub. I was, you know, the bathtub was over here. I'm kind of around the corner doing makeup, checking on her. And, and she's playing and she's got her Barbies in the bathtub. But you can imagine with five daughters, I'm telling you the naked Barbie population at my house. You can spot a dad who's had a lot of daughters. I'll find Mike sometimes, naked Barbie in hand gesturing. And so then I was saying about that particular market item, and he, he is oblivious. He has a naked woman in his hand, <laughs> because our Barbies are a team of nudists, and, and they're up to no good in that Barbie condo because their numbers keep populating at a rate that I cannot explain. It just seems like there's another dozen Barbies every quarter. I don't know where they're coming from. They're just like little rabbits. But they're all naked all the time, all Barbies all the time. So the kid was in the bathtub with her Barbies, her collection of Barbies, and I could hear this kind of ruckus going on, and when I finally zoned in and really listened to the conversation, this is what was happening. Oh, no, no, no. I will baptize you. <laughs> oh, no, no, please not me. You will be baptized. <laughs> and sometimes we call that audacious faith. We're still worried about the tally marks at the end of the evangelism campaign that we are bullying people instead of letting God draw them unto himself. And then here's another thing about audacious faith. It's not about being the biggest personality in the room. Sometimes we take that big word audacious and we think it means extrovert. <laughs> we take that big word audacious and we think it means the class comedian or the one who communicates at a certain level or the friendliest. But that's not what audacious faith is either. 
I've stated this in other settings, and I've had some women come to me, tears in their eyes, did you know it is not a sin to be an introvert? We were just talking about this. If God designs you to be an introvert, awesome. You still qualify to have audacious faith. Because it's not about having the biggest personality. You can be quiet and be You can be someone who gets filled back up in your alone time with God, and you have a reservoir to pour out that is exceptional. Don't ever let the enemy make you think that in order to be audacious in your faith, you have to somehow be the homecoming queen of everything. It's a lie. You rest in your introversion, in your introversion, and let God, let God work with you. To be audacious is to be bold in what we believe. It's not about agendas. It's not about forcing anybody. It's not about trying to change the very core of your personality into something you're not. To be audacious is to be bold about what we believe. Let's talk about four different elements. But just conveniently, I'll start with you about what it means to be bold in what we My husband, Mike, is in financial services, and he's kind of done it all. He's been with Merrill Lynch, he's been with UBS, he's managed, he's managed huge portfolios of money. We're now in a situation that we love, thank you, Lord, because we moved around for a while, and we're now, we've been in Austin almost nine years, and he is a partner with a small boutique firm now that is Austin-based. And so I think, Lord, please, we are home. I actually might get the nerve to rip up some carpet and actually put down tile somewhere. It's gonna be amazing, I'll let you know how it goes. So I think we are home, that is definitely our intention. We have now put down some deep roots in Austin, Texas, and we love it. But Mike has always been determined that if our kids can sell something in our free market economy, they'll always have some ability to hold down a job. If you can sell something, then you'll always have the ability to have some kind of job. Mike is just. He repeats it over and over. He's like, we know, if we can sell something, we'll always have some kind of job. So he, from the time our kids, our older kids were a little bitty, he would take them out selling candy door to door for a homeschool business project. Nice, huh? And so he would go buy a big box of candy at Sam's and he would coach them. And the first couple of times he'd walk up with them and he would tell them what to say. Okay, now introduce who you are. Hi, my name is McKenna Carr and tell them what you're doing. I'm selling candy, and why are you selling candy? For a homeschool business project, would you like to buy this candy bar for a dollar? And so they would go through this routine, and then he would start moving them to the place where they would walk up by themselves, and he would stand down at the end of the sidewalk, but they would go ring the doorbell, they would walk through the script, they would walk through the explanation of what they were doing. My son, Justice, who's my third child, my oldest son, he <laughs> had this callet when he was a kid, he called it the quail, it's like this triple cowl right here. It would stand up like this. And I'm telling you, you can tell what his, what his day was and what his temper was from that cowl. When he was really excited about something, his cowl was like this. And if he started getting tired, started getting an ear infection, it would do this. It was amazing. It was like this little barometer on his head. Huge blue eyes, major energy. His justice is a little kid. And also very, very sensitive. One of my kids that is so keyed into all the emotions around him. He's got like emotional ears like a bat, you know what I'm talking about? He's very aware of how people are 
ooh, oh, is she, is she okay? Did I say that wrong? And ooh, she looks really sleepy. And I, he's just always tuned in to what people might possibly be thinking or feeling. He's very, very sensitive. Wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, he's 19 and he unabashedly calls himself a mama's boy. You know, hugs him in front of all of his friends. I hate it. It's awesome. <laughs> So Mike has justice all ready to go, and Mike's like, you know, I'm going to tee this kid up good because they've gone through a couple of, you know, walkthroughs with Mike right by him, but now Mike's going to have him fly a little bit solo. So there was a guy that Mike um, knew from a business networking group where they'd meet, you know, and have coffee and kind of connect different people. It was a large group, met about once a month, and this guy happened to live around the corner in our neighborhood, and this guy was in sales. Mike was like, this is perfect. This guy will be all over this. I mean, you know, I'll have justice solo with him. He's a guy in sales. He's going to understand. He's going to really grab on the vision of helping train these kids to be ready for, for sales. This is going to be awesome. So Mike gives Justice the whole talk through, and here's what we're going to do, and da-da-da-da. He doesn't tell Justice this guy is a guy that Mike knows. And so they come up to the house, and Mike stands at the end of the sidewalk, and Justice walks, and he rings the doorbell. The guy answers the door and says, what? What do you want? And Justice says, my name is Douglas Carr, and I am selling candy a homeschool business project. And the guy said, I don't want any. Get off my property. Slam. And Mike is just, ah, uh, uh, okay, that, that was unexpected. And then his next thought is, oh no. Because of all the kids who would be crushed by this, by this kind of rejection, this kind of rudeness, it's justice. Justice comes walking back down the sidewalk gets in front of Mike and says, well, he must not have any teeth. <laughs> you know, when life throws us a curveball, to have audacious faith is to be audacious enough to believe the best. To be audacious enough to believe the best. To believe that God always has his best in play. Instead of somebody just being rude, maybe they don't have any teeth. When one of God's kids does not treat you in the way that you would have expected, to just say, they must be having a rough day. When the job interview didn't go the way that you expected, to know that God's best is still out there. It takes an audacious level of faith in this world, in a very negative world, to believe that God's best can still be there when things don't go the way we hope. You have to be audacious to believe that. I look at Luke 1.38. This sweet girl, Mary, seems to have a quiet personality when I read about her. And she has something very unexpected happen. And we all look at it because we know the end of the story, okay? We know that she ends up becoming the mother of Jesus, and Jesus changes the whole world and changes eternity and is our Savior. We know the end of the book. Mary did not. She knew some vague prophecies. But remember, this was not in a day and an age where you just kept the final Bible up on the shelf. The scrolls were kept at the synagogue as a woman she probably didn't read. She only knew those bits and pieces of flickers of prophecy about this coming Messiah. And then she has this experience. Hey, how you doing? How's it going wrapping up high school? Hey, by the way, uh, I'm going to be pregnant. <laughs> no, you're engaged. No, you guys picked a time pattern. 
find it a little weird. <laughs> Here we go. And Mary has such an audacious faith in her quiet spirit that she says in, one, in Luke 138, let it be unto me as you have said. She believes that this will be God's best. She doesn't have all the details. It certainly is not convenient. There's going to be that whole awkward conversation with Joseph that might not go well. But she's audacious enough to believe the best. We have to be audacious enough to believe for better days. Audacious enough to believe for better days. One of my favorite, favorite people in the Bible, and I just keep coming back to this book over and over. It's not a long book. But there is so much treasure seated in this book. It's the book of Ruth. And you know, we've got the story of a young woman who has known some really bitter days. She's been raised in a pagan culture. I don't know if you're aware of where Ruth came from and how they would always say, well, she's Ruth the Moabitess. When she gets to Israel, how they always identify her that way. What they're really saying about her is she's Ruth the girl from that incestuous tribe. Because what the history of the tribe that she is from is there is the father, Abraham, right? The father of many nations, years before. He has a nephew named Lot. Lot lives in Vegas, Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is told that Vegas is going to go down and they need to hit the road. Lot gets his wife and his two daughters, and they begin to exit to try to flee the coming destruction. Lot's wife turns around to look. She becomes the original Morton Salt girl. Lot's two daughters make their way with their father. Initially, they're told to go into a small village, but Lot is concerned that they'll be recognized, they'll be in danger. So they go, and they, they're hiding out in these caves. And this is where the story gets really cringeworthy. It's not one that we put in the beginner's Bible with cute little cartoony drawings. We kind of skip. Because Lot's daughters have realized there is no Match.com out here. There is no speed dating round to be had. And so the older daughter says to the younger daughter, I tell you what, if we're ever going to have kids, it's going to have to be through Lot. And so they bust open the minibar, and they activate their plan. And they both become pregnant. It's like... Who remembers the song, I'm My Own Grandpa? I like that. Because they are, these boys that each of these girls have, they're half-brothers, they're cousins, their grandfather is their father. I mean, it's, it's a mess. And the older of these two boys born out of the situation, he becomes the father of the Moabites, this tribe that's off to the side. For the Jewish culture, you can imagine how repulsive this was. When you look at all that is said in Leviticus about keeping family lines clean and everybody minding their own and all of that, this was so repulsive to them. So not only is her heritage in major, in major play, they also serve a god called Molech. And we know about Molech because of what's called the Chemish Stone. Not only is he mentioned in the word as an idol, but he is also mentioned in this archaeological record that we have the Chemosh stone. And it talked about how they would sacrifice to Molech. They would sacrifice their children to him in fire. That's where Ruth comes from. 
That is her heritage. And when Naomi begins the trek back to Israel, after her sons, one of whom was married to Ruth, and her husband had died, they had gone to Moab out of famine. And it must have been a bad family for them to have been willing to go to that place, to Moab. She picks up with her two daughter-in-laws, and they begin back. Second daughter-in-law says, you know, this has been fun. Um, I'm actually going to go back home. Goes back to what is familiar. Ruth continues on her way with Naomi, gives us that beautiful prose of where you go, I'll go, where you stay, I'll stay, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And they cruise back into Bethlehem. But of this Thelma and Louise moment, I gotta say, I don't think Naomi would be all that fun to travel with, because when they get back into town, they were like, oh, you're back, Naomi. And Naomi says, don't even call me that. Call me Mara. Because my life has become very, very bitter. Audacious faith would have us make a choice. We can believe for bitter days or better days. Bitter or better. And Ruth chooses to believe for better days. She goes on to meet Boaz. Now, Naomi's a bit of a cougar and all that. Naomi's helped set that up. She goes on to meet Boaz. She becomes filled with a vision again for what life can be. She marries him. And she becomes one of the primary ancestors of King David and of Jesus Christ. What an audacious faith to go from everything that you've known, which has been bloody, which has had very questionable parentage, which has included a husband who's died young, which has included a mother-in-law who's at the place in her world, she's like, just name me bitter, just name me bitter. And to still look with hope into what can be. Audacious faith believes for better days. I'm just audacious enough to believe that when I am faced with a choice of bitter or better, God is up to something it takes audacious faith to say that, right? But that God can be up to something better. As a people, we want to be audacious enough to believe for beauty. There are some ugly things in this world. Ugly. And yet we have to believe for beauty. Isaiah 61.3 says, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Beauty for ashes. Y'all experience it here on the plains, in your farming, in those times where the winter seems to just dampen the promise, right? It doesn't seem that there's going to be evidence of any kind of spring. And yet you've seen it, right? You've experienced it. You can be audacious in your faith, even if this was snow covered today. Audacious in your faith that there would be the beauty of spring flowers coming. We have to look back at what the Lord has done in certain seasons. To be audacious enough to believe that beauty is coming. That out of ashes, beauty will come. 
Fifteen years ago this month, I sat in an audiology booth with my fourth child, Macy. She was two and a half at the time. And I had pulled Macy into our pediatrician back around the time she was two because I just felt like her language development was just off. And my pediatrician at the time kind of patted me on the head, patted her on the head, and said, you're just being a nervous mommy. You know, you've got, of your three children, your three older children, two of them were very early verbal, Madison and Justice. And she said, you know, you're just putting that expectation on Macy, and, and she'll be fine, just in her own time, she'll come up with language. I was so relieved to hear that, and so we took off. Six months later, I was back. Because again, her speech just didn't seem to be coming online whatsoever. And the pediatrician kind of looked at me again like, I told you everything's fine. I don't really understand why you're back. She said, well, to humor you, I tell you what we'll do. Um, we'll go ahead and we'll get her in with a developmental specialist. Um, I'm just going to do a quick eye exam here. I've already done an ear exam. But go on and we're going to go on and get her into speech therapy because I think that that will make you feel better. So go on and take her to this audiologist and then he'll get the script for speech therapy and we'll just kind of check off the boxes. But she's fine. I'll tell me she's fine. So on what was supposed to be a very routine visit, I took her to the audiologist office and we sat in a little booth and there's one speaker behind you that has this little dog with drums that when a sound goes off on this speaker, the child's gonna turn and the, the little surprise they get, their incentive for looking toward the sound is this little dog, this little drum. And on this side is a speaker and there's actually what seems to be a little mechanized, it almost looks demonic. It's like a monkey with cymbals. And it's like the most terrifying. I don't know why a child would want to look at that, actually. But these are the two little things that they've got on either speaker that are going to be the incentives when Macy responds to sound. And so she's sitting on my lap. I'm pregnant with our fifth child. She's leaned back across the mound on my stomach. And the audiologist is emitting these sounds through these speakers. And she is not responding. So I'm like, Macy. <laughs> and she's not responding. The audiologist opens that soundproof door. I start to step out. Bless his heart, he, he had um, no boothside manner or personality, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> and he said, Well, clearly she's deaf. Um, so you, we're going to put her on amoxicillin for a few weeks just to make sure it's not an ear infection, but it's not. And then you'll just come back and, um, you know, we'll just, we'll just kind of take it from there. And I was sidelined. I had no, I had not seen this coming whatsoever. <coughs> she'd been in pediatric appointments. She'd been going to a speech pathologist. Nobody had been aware. And then I made the further discovery that insurance companies typically don't pay for hearing aids. Political statement. They pay for Viagra. They do not pay for hearing aids for your hearing impaired child. Just give me a moment. <laughs> making some assumptions about the people making the choices um, in that situation. And so we began this very long process with Macy of determining what to do. The Lord ultimately, in a real miraculous way, led us to exactly the therapy group that she needed. But there was a year in the wilderness that was brutal, trying to figure out what our next step should be. So, we experienced that. <coughs> and then, eight years ago, we discovered when Mercy, 
one of the twins, was about 10 months old that she had experienced a stroke at birth. And she has left side hemiplasia, what's also called cerebral palsy. Her crawl never evolved. We were trying to figure out what was going on. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, God, we already checked that box, remember? <laughs> we have a child with special needs. Now we're going <coughs> to And it was a whole new world again, trying to determine therapies and what we were supposed to do and what still honored her, and yet at the same time, we needed to push her. And we did Botox shots into her arm, and her neurologist was really mean and wouldn't share with me. We were standing there. She had the Botox <laughs> in her hand. There's plenty to go around. Um, we would put the Botox into Mercy's arm and into her legs to try to loosen those cramped muscles. We were doing all kinds of different brain research and therapy and cross-patterning and on and on and on and on. And in the middle of all of it, I kept saying, God, what is the point of this? I mean, the time this takes, the finances this kids with special needs are expensive, let me just share. The kind of finances this takes. I just, Lord, what? What are we doing? And then five years ago, we received that initial grant money to start Legacy of Hope and begin its programs to dance to dream, and tonight to dream, and to ride to dream, where we could offer services for families of children with special needs, things that I would not have known were needed had I not walked it. And when I have now had the opportunity multiple times to stand in a vast crowd of people, and watch them watch these kids with special needs take the stage in full costumes and dance their hearts out. There is no beauty like it. None. There is nothing as spectacular I don't think I've ever seen. So I'm a believer. I am audacious enough to believe there is beauty even when it doesn't look like it in the beginning. And then we have to be audacious enough to believe that there is a battle going on. Part of the reason that we aren't audacious is because we get comfortable. And we don't realize all that's going on around us. All the things the enemy is trying to throw our way. You know, a lot of times it's not that the enemy is just trying to shut us up or take us out. He's just trying to get us comfortable. Because when we get comfortable, then we're not activated. When we get comfortable, we don't fight for anything. <coughs> when we get comfortable, we don't have to be bold. Ephesians 6 and 12 reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is battle going on. If somebody started to come into this town and you knew there was an army coming in to start taking over territory, if you knew that an ISIS group was coming in and they were going to go into your school, you would do something. You would recognize it as battle. But we don't recognize the spiritual battle going on around us. That neighbor who's being a jerk and partying into the night and having people park on your lawn and then throw their crushed beer cans into your yard, you're irritated because you think it's a neighbor issue. It's a battle. The enemy's battling for that person. And all we're doing by getting ticked about it is nothing. 
Are we audacious enough to believe there's a battle? Will you be audacious enough to go try to make friends? Not talk about the inconvenience. Go try to make friends. Because there's a battle going on for that person. The family member who's just ticked you off one too many times. And should you have appropriate boundaries? Absolutely. But do you see that there's a battle for that person's heart? It changes your perspective on so many things if we're audacious enough to see the battle. So yes, there is spiritual warfare that goes on. There are things that happen in the spiritual, but there is also a battle within our own hearts. Galatians 5, 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. We don't understand there's a battle for us, either. And we become complacent. God and I are good. You know, I do my little Bible reading in the morning. Um, keep the radio station tuned to Christian Radio. You know, we're at church a couple, three times a month. We're good. God and I are good. <coughs> That's not audacious, is it? That's just going through the motion. That's not protecting your heart against battle. That's not protecting those you love against the battle that is waging against them. Audacious enough to believe that there is a battle. I love the way the Message Bible says this. Because often in this battle for our hearts, we've decided that we're not going to do anything big for God. God uses everybody else. And we allow the enemy to whisper that. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a battle is flaming arrows coming at us, as the Lord tells us. Sometimes battle is just sly whispers. Do you know how in many times in, in battle, how an enemy would infiltrate the intelligence and the technology and the battle techniques that were going to be used? They would have a spy who would just kind of whisper some things into the other camp. Well, you know, I've just, I've heard that really it sounds like that group may be coming in, that, that battalion might be coming in, but they're probably really not. There would be spies that would purposely give false information. There were spies who were trying to get information, right? Let's say from the Allied side during World War II. They'd be trying to get information. But there were spies who were purposing to put falsehood <coughs> into the Allies. To placate, to have them back off to distract, to go have them be ready to fight a battle on a battlefield where no enemy was going to show up. Our enemy does that to us. Sometimes there are things that are direct attacks, and what's interesting in a direct attack is oftentimes we are better to understand that and see it. Oh, well, I'm going to be bold in my faith. I'm going to speak better things. I'm going to stand in prayer. I see this. But if we are audacious enough to believe that there's always a battle going on somewhere, then we can also develop a greater activation toward understanding when he's whispering something that isn't true. <coughs> Somebody told you that you're not enough? That God doesn't need you? Everybody else took the spiritual gift assessment and actually ended up with a spiritual gift? You got a D? <laughs> I flunked spiritual assessment 101. Do you believe that stuff? Well, my marriage is too much of a mess. What can I ever say to anybody? My marriage went down in flames. What do I have to say to anybody? My kids ended up screwed up. How could I ever help a young mom? 
I don't know enough of the Bible. I don't really have an ability to say anything. That is a battle technique of the enemy. You are enough. We can be fully equipped through the Holy Spirit. We all have a story to tell. We have all been given a gift to share. We are all kitted out for battle. We just have to have the audacity to show up for the fight and to be ready. I am audacious enough to believe that there is a battle. And friends, once that's taken care of and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, we're bold and free before God. We're able to stretch our hands out and receive what we asked for because we're doing what he said, doing what pleases him. Again, this is God's command to believe in his personally named son, Jesus Christ. He told us to love each other in line with the original command, 1 John 3, verses 21 through 24 in the Message Bible. When we get hold of and embrace that we no longer have to accuse or belittle or question who God created each of us to be, then we're ready for battle. So what are you audacious enough to believe about yourself? Are you a favorite child of God? Does he have plan and purpose for your life? If you can't speak a resounding yes to that, I'm begging you, get with a beloved teacher or counselor. Let him speak truth over you. I know we're all worried about what's going to happen with political correctness and our ability to talk about our faith. Those are valid concerns. But we right now can speak about our faith, and we don't. We right now can grab hands before a meal in a public restaurant and pray, and we know. We are so mired in questioning, does God really love me? Does he really favor me? Does he really approve of me? Does he really have a plan that we're the ones who push the mute button? Us. Are you audacious enough to believe what God says about you? That you are his best. Well, Julie, these people I read about in the Bible and they have these fantastical gifts and on and on and on. I don't think we're reading the same Bible. Moses self-confessed, had a speech impediment, and was a poor public speaker and became the voice for a nation. Paul had a gilded education to go to the Jews. So God sends him specifically to the Gentiles. David is the last of a line of sons. He's so obscure, in a sense, to his father Jesse that when Samuel comes on a secret mission to anoint the next king of Israel, it's like it doesn't even cross Jesse's mind that David would be a possibility. Here's the first one, 6'2", look at the breadth of their shoulders. And God says, I look at the heart. And it becomes this last in the line of these sons who becomes the predominant king of his era. So don't tell me that you don't have the stuff that some of the major players in the Bible did. Because you do. God's whole point is, I can work with what you consider nothing and make it everything. I can take just a few loaves and fishes and feed a huge crowd. Just be bold enough to believe that you are my best, and my best expression 
for this generation. I've been in love with two men for 28 years. My husband, Michael, and with his permission and consent and affirmation, his dad, Jerry Carr. And Thursday night, as I was wrapping up my notes for this, we received word that my father-in-law, after weeks of testing that showed nothing, 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 has now been diagnosed in the end stages of pancreatic cancer. He would have told us we have a few weeks left with him. I wasn't going to talk about it today, but I just feel like I'm supposed to, because I'm audacious enough to believe there's a battle. There's a battle. And I'm audacious enough to believe that there's something that comes after this life. And I am audacious enough through Jesus Christ to believe that though my father-in-law's body, they tell us, is dying, my father-in-law will never die. In the core of who he is, and in the essence of who he is, and in the spirit of who he is, and in the character of who he is, because of Jesus Christ. I don't think we can survive what life throws at us if we don't have audacious faith to go against the grain of what life says is the natural progression. And what life throws at us is grief and is tragedy and the distraction that the enemy tries to bring. I am audacious enough to believe that there is something beyond this. And I am audacious enough to believe that there are people who probably got the same diagnosis the same day we did about somebody they love and they have no hope because they don't know what's beyond this. We are grieving as a family. I cried all the way up here, cried all the way home. But I'm more passionate than ever that there is something beyond this life. And that is the great hope that I can give to others. I want to be audacious enough to speak that God's best is always at play. That when life offers bitter or better, God is up to something bigger if we would choose the better. That there is a battle going on that we need to be equipped to fight. And knowing in the natural progression of things, what we're probably going to be experiencing as a family over the next few weeks, I am just audacious enough through the grace of Jesus Christ to know that there will be grief. There will be grief. And I will look for it. Let me pray. Father, life is just too hard to not be audacious in what we believe. The enemy uses so many different techniques. He uses complacency, he uses comfort. Sometimes he's just flat and mean. Father, help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to be audacious enough to believe in your best to believe there are better days, to believe in the beauty you surround with us. And God, equip us to fight this battle.
Father, resolve for us once and for all, for every woman in this room, that we are enough, that you have made us enough, that we are your best expression, that we have something to give, that there is someone that we can help carry forward in audacious faith. Forgive us, Father, when all of our own stuff is just so much louder than the whisper of your Holy Spirit saying you are mine and you are enough. We ask this.